Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me today, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everyone. Hope you're doing well today. And this is a three-person pod, at least for the first segment. Joining me is our good friend, Ash Paulson. Yay. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Ash is a regular on Game Explain, and he is an RPG aficionado. He He's just crazy for his RPGs. Also a big Mega Man nut, which means that Nadia, of course, loves him. <laughs> yes, we, we've had our exchanges about Mega Man in the past, and uh, uh, we've actually both done work for Udon. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, you work at Udon, so. Well, yeah, I, I used to at least. Yeah, it was, it's kind of crazy how our, uh, our, how our Mega Man paths have crossed in various ways over the years. But, uh, yeah, we did some, some Mega Man stuff at Udon together, and uh, we've talked about plenty of Mega Man. And I can't wait till you get to play Mega Man 11 so we can talk about it together. <laughs> we'll have a nice conversation together, a nice peaceful conversation. Yes. I love Ash because he has extremely strong opinions uh, that aren't <laughs> always in the mainstream. For example, Ash. You really love Mega Man 5. Like, that is, like, one of your favorite games. I do. I, I do, despite the fact that I recognize that it's flawed. I, I'm, not, I'm not going around saying, oh, it's the perfect Mega Man game. It definitely <laughs> is not. But despite its flaws, I really do love it. I, I like 5, too. I like 4 as well. I actually really like 4 and 7, which are the ones that people hate the most. Thanks. I hate 7 so, so much. No, like <laughs> 7 is not good. <laughs> 7 is real bad. I would go as far as to say it's the worst num- numbered Mega Man. You're outnumbered 2 to one, uh, oh. two to 3 here. It's almost as bad as six. How could you? What? Six is <laughs> so well. How could you say such a thing? Especially in a world where Mega Man and base exists. That's true. But Ash has good opinions as well. Like, for example, he loves Chrono Trigger. That's a good opinion. But yes, I do. The reason we brought him on the show today was, uh, so he did the review for Ease 8 on the Nintendo Switch. And it jumped out immediately because uh, Ease 8 has had a kind of a troubled localization period. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just for some background, uh, Falcom recently went over to NIS America uh, to do this localization for Ease 8. Uh, previously, I believe they've been with Exceed. Yes, Exceed. And I gotta, man, it's just been not super great for Falcom because Ease 8, is, I, I would actually, in the, in the relatively limited scope of the hardcore JRPG, I would say Ease 8 is a fairly big project i mean polygon mm-hmm. called it one of the most underrated rpgs of last year and you would really hope that they would kind of crush the localization but instead it's been completely the opposite i would i would go as far as to say that it's been a disaster yeah they went and completely yeah. relocalized the game and somehow it's even worse yeah and it's not just the localization as i understand it there was a disastrous pc release and like that's where ease has always had its strongest fan base is on that's why i first played ease mm. was on the, the pc and just the day before it was supposed to come out on pc apparently they just dropped it and didn't explain why for a long time and then when they finally brought it back it was just a mess of a port and it's just not fair to what's actually a great game because i i too gave ease 8 uh one of my uh, slots on my 2007 2017 game of the year list yeah and i mean I, I don't quite understand either because it's not as if all the localization issues they're not like early ps1 day localization-esque problems like this guy are sick like it's stuff <laughs> there there is some weird sounding text but it's actually mostly stuff that's like 
text formatting and repeated mm-hmm. lines and lines that clearly are not meant to be where they are. And there's even one you can see in my review, actually, on Game Explain. There's one line, at least, where it, the, the text starts English and then ends in Japanese. Like it's, it's not a fully translated line. <laughs> I saw that on your review and I laughed my ass off because I'm actually what used happened? to seeing like, like <laughs> phrases where they're fully Japanese, but I've never seen something where it starts English and ends <laughs> Japanese. That was great. I have never seen such a thing. I, I don't think in my life playing video games, and I, I, it just defies explanation. Like, what in the world happened here? Yeah, yeah. This was supposed to be the fixed localization as well. I, I remember there was a unlocalized line in a very specific circumstance on SMT4 Apocalypse. I want to say, and Atlas was just completely mortified mm-hmm. and apologized profusely and everything, especially because they couldn't easily. I mean, I think they could. I think they could fix it on the 3DS because you could push a patch. But, yeah, you can patch it. Uh, but it, certainly nothing on this level, and it's just—it's a pity that this is a thing because I really want Ease Eight to do well and succeed. And I was hoping that the Nintendo Switch would be a little bit of a, I suppose, coming out party for it. They do say that they're going to have. Three, uh, we're gonna have multiple launch day patches. I believe three of them, wow. uh, to fix yeah. up the text. And the game's not technically out, I don't think. I think it comes out on the 27th, I want to say, Ash. I think it's the 26th. The 26th, yeah. The 26th. Yeah, so it'll be out next week. So there's still time to kind of address it. And I, I really, I really do hope that they address it because it's just been, an ongoing mess uh, for Ease 8, and I can't imagine that Falcom is particularly happy with NAS America at the moment. No, does anyone know why the Switch was made? Because x always did a fantastic job, just why would you suddenly switch like that? Uh, well, I mean, it's from my understanding, talking to the CEO last year, was that they really, uh, like, NAS America has been after Falcom for a long time, mm. and I did not get specifics, but I have to imagine that they gave them a solid publishing deal, and they said, all right, yeah, we'll go with you. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, and now they've been burned by both XSEED and seemingly NIS America, and it's it's like, where do you go? I mean, there there are other, obviously, you know, translation houses, but the track record for this game, as you both have been saying, it's just kind of crazy, and... Kind of speaking to what you were saying, Nadia, it is a real shame because I didn't play East 8 back in 2017 when it originally released. Right. I did play the PS4 demo and I really liked it, but I just never got around to playing it. And I had never played an East game before. Like I'd always kind of existed around the series and appreciated it, but uh-huh. I always wanted to get into it. And so I finally did for this review for the Switch version. And it's a fantastic game. Like it is so underappreciated and underrated and it flew under the radar completely. And this game deserves a, a, a localization that is as good as it is. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I was uh, something else I noticed in your review was the uh, like I don't ask for sixty frames per second on the Switch. I just don't. But you mentioned uh, frame rate drops, especially with boss fights, and I don't think there's an excuse for that. Yeah, and it's, it's not just boss fights. It's not really even just boss fights. It's, it's any time things get really hectic in combat, but even more often when you swing the camera around and you're like, you got some crazy landscape shot shots. Right. Like it happens a lot in Castaway Village when you're just kind of panning the camera around, it, you know, and various parts of the environment swing into view, and it really gets choppy. Like, I would say down into the 20s, maybe, maybe even high 10s. I'm not, you know, wow. exactly sure. And Castaway but- Village is not a very busy, like, place. Like, it's just uh, the, the hub where you and your characters kind of interact, isn't it? 
if I'm remembering right, correctly. Right, yeah, exactly. And then there are, and but there are other parts of Castaway Village, I would say most of it, where it's completely smooth. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's very inconsistent performance. And I mean, I'm not, I'm obviously not an engineer, but from what I played of the PS4 version of East 8, it didn't seem to me like there were such crazy graphics being pushed that, no. that the Switch version would need to be compromised this much. And this, no, this does really seem to me to be like an optimization issue. Yeah, because uh, again, uh, the yes, PlayStation Four was sixty frames per second. It was quite consistent, as I recall. But if the Switch can do uh, Breath of the Wild without much of a problem, it sure as hell can do Ease uh, Eight without a problem. You would think so. Uh, yeah. It was interesting though, because I was talking to uh, the general manager of Panic Button during E three, and you can go read a couple articles that I did with them. Um, uh, regarding, say, the Nintendo Switch's, uh, say, prospects as the next generation kind of comes along, whether or not, for example, third-party games have already maxed out uh, the Nintendo Switch's capabilities. And he said that one of the problems is trying to optimize a game that wasn't built for the Nintendo Switch, mm-hmm. for the Nintendo Switch. Sure. And specifically, like, I don't know when Ease 8 was originally, uh, was originally started development, but... I sincerely doubt that it was originally pitched for the Nintendo Switch or built with the Nintendo Switch in mind. Probably not, no. Right, yeah. And what I'm kind of getting is that the Nintendo Switch is... There's a lot going on there. You have to deal with battery issues and that sort of thing. And so what optimization is a kind of a delicate art uh, when you're porting over a game like Ease 8. Yeah, like, I, I think that if it had been built from the start with the Nintendo Switch in mind, rather than just trying to yeah. port it over, like porting over this extremely complicated game, which Ease 8 is a complicated game. Well, I think that they would have an easier time. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Except I don't think there's any reason for it to go down to the tens when you have Castaway Village, which is just like a village with a few people living in it, you know? Well, now, to be fair, that's just my own estimation. I don't have, you know, I don't have a frame counter. Right, on, right. So, but it does, it really drops down. Now, of course, those those drops are always very temporary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, on the other hand, I do want to say and, and congratulate the engineers for the fact that they got such a massive complicated game running at all on the Switch. Not that the Switch couldn't handle it, but the fact that you could take a game like East 8 in handheld mode and play it on the go with this massive world to explore, and still, you know, appreciable performance. It may not be amazing, but it's it's pretty solid on handheld mode, and, and the graphics look good enough, especially on that small screen. So, the fact that this game, a, a game like this, is playable at all in a handheld format, I think is really impressive. So I don't want to go too hard on the graphics here, performance, and be like, wow, they did a terrible job. I right, mean, right. There, There is certainly an impressive aspect of it, but I just, it's mainly the TV mode aspect I'm talking about. That I is so weird. mode, it really, really shines. <laughs> that is weird, because usually it's the opposite. Usually docked mode is, uh, although there is a beta version of the game, which I have not played it. I don't know how well it performs, but uh, that's another, I guess, standard to kind of hold up the, the Switch version against if someone else out there wants to comment on it. I have heard, and I, I, I've checked out some comparisons myself on YouTube, and I've heard from other people that the Switch version definitely comes in closer to the PS4 version in terms of overall, you know, right. textures, graphical fidelity. Uh, so it's definitely not a glorified Vita port. It's certainly closer to the PS4 version. Okay, but that's good it's to know. Not yeah, obviously up to that standard. Right. Yeah, still the dock thing is, is pretty funny, and I'm glad to hear that it is better in handheld mode because I do plan to buy this game specifically because I want to play it in handheld mode. <laughs> Right. Well, and that's, you know, that's kind of the great thing about the Switch screen, too, is, you know, when you're downscaling to 720p like that, 
you know, even graphics that that may not look quite as good as you'd like on a giant TV mm-hmm. are going to look a lot better, you know, pick, you know, per pixel on that small screen. So yeah, it really does shine in a handheld context, I think, on Switch. The first thing I wanted when I watched your review, Ash, the first thing I wanted to do was delete it from my Switch and go get it on the PS4. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, and I was brutally honest about that. I'm like, hey, this is a great game no matter where you play it. But if you foresee yourself playing it at home and you have multiple platforms, if you have a PS4, get that version. Because as I'm playing through for the review, I'm like, I have this slight, just like tinge of regret in my head. Like, man, I really wish I was playing this fantastic game on the PS4 just because it looks and runs so much better. And right. this is coming from someone who isn't usually, you know, a graphic snob. Like, I don't consider myself that at all. I, I'm usually perfectly fine with, uh, you know, graphical downgrades and things like that, but it just, just runs so smoothly on PS4. Yeah, it looked really good on the PS4. Not only that, like, it, it's not a graphical showcase, as it were, but it is a pretty good-looking game, yeah, yeah. and it relies heavily on these really big monster fights, right? Mm-hmm. And this exploring this open world, and I think that when you can nail a 60 frames per second, I, I think that really helps perceptually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Especially because, you know, the combat itself is very arcade, arcade-y, I would say. Yeah. It's just very, yeah, it's just the, the controls are very slick, very sharp, and there's just a, there's an immediacy and kind of a, a freeform element to the combat that just makes it feel almost like you're playing an arcade game. And... Those kinds of, you know, that kind of gameplay, those kinds of action games, combat-heavy games, really do benefit from 60 frames per second a lot of the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I actually wonder if, uh, we t- we've, we've heard about a patch for the translation. I wonder if we're going to see any sort of patch on day one for the, uh, the, you know, the camera jank you were speaking of earlier. Well, I, I kind of don't think so, only because we also got an email uh, from an NIS represent- representative talking about a review, saying, hey, we saw your review, we liked it. But we noticed that you said that the the localization was deeply unprofessional. Just so you know, there are three patches coming to address those issues. But they didn't. I, and I, but I also did talk about the mm-hmm. graphical issues. So I feel like if if they were going to address those, they probably would have said. <laughs> yeah, that I think you're right at that point. So, um, and, but you know, and for the record, we haven't actually we we were going to pin a comment uh, to the top of my review saying, "Hey, here these patches are coming," but they haven't come yet. Of course, it's not launch day yet. So we're kind of waiting. Let's say let's say I bought let's say I bought Ease Eight on a Nintendo Switch and I didn't have an easy way to get say my Switch on the internet, which is still a thing. Yeah, it's still a, a thing in some places in some locations. So now I've got a completely broken localization on my game. I I don't think that just because they have patches on the way means that they are necessarily free of criticism. I completely agree. Yeah, and, and that's why even Andre at uh, Game Explained he was like, well, I mean, we were talking about how they forgot to tell us there were patches on the way at all like i had no mm-hmm, idea that these mm-hmm. patches even mm-hmm. existed until a couple of days ago when they re- remembered to email us about them which is great but as andre was saying and i agree with him that doesn't absolve them of anything i mean we're, we're i'm still reviewing the game as it was at at the time yeah, that I absolutely played. actually the the first time i even heard about the patches was uh they were talking about the game and probably a review on uh recent era and uh, someone from NIS America was like, oh, oh yeah, we're, we're getting patches out for that, uh, those problems soon. And people on the board were like, you might want to say something because reviews are mentioning this and we have no idea that this is coming. Yeah, I mean, we had no clue about that. And I certainly would have mentioned it in my review if, if I had known that. But I mean, at the same time, though, as we've all been saying, 
this is their second go around. Not NIS's necessarily, but this is Falcom's, unfortunately, second go around trying to get this game localized properly. Uh-huh. And how how are they even in this position is what I want to know. <laughs> That's like, what I like to know. How did they even get here? I'm so surprised. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I did not have a big problem with the localization the first time around. I don't remember there being the errors that you pointed out in your review. Um, maybe they were there and I just completely glossed over them, but I don't think I did. Uh, maybe the dialogue was a bit rough, but this isn't exactly a very story-heavy game, so it didn't really bother me that much. And But I will be bothered by bad word wrap and, and spelling errors and untranslated sentences. Right. Well, and, and that's what's funny is, is from what I recall of, of the initial translation, uh, really all I saw of it was the PS4 demo as well as what I played at the PlayStation conference last year, Cat, when I was with uh, we, you and I were talking, and I played some East 8. And uh, I, I do recall that the problems with that localization were more of the, like I said earlier, the Final Fantasy VII variety where it's just, it's not natural and it obviously reads as something that was translated very loosely from Japanese. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed, like, just to, to hear that your review, uh, Ash, not because you did a bad review. Your review was great. Just the fact that I was like, how could, like you, I was saying, how could they screw it up twice in two very different, interesting ways? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. They they came so close to completely sticking the landing. And, I mean, I, I would have given it a love it easily, despite any, right. you know, performance problems. You know, that performance problems or graphics issues don't usually bring a game's score down for me unless it's, like, something really, really serious. Right. And... No, that would not have affected my score or brought it down, but I, I had to bring my score down just because I, as much as I love the game, and I really do, I just cannot look the other way yeah. with so many obvious polish problems. I just I just simply cannot. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this, thinking back, I remember you saying, like, oh, I'm reviewing uh, Ease 8 or whatever, and that was, a, that was quite a long time ago, so I'm surprised they, now at the last second, they're addressing these localization issues. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that at some point during the review process, they might have wanted to push out those patches a little earlier so I could, you know, realize, hey, there's a patch that's fixing all this stuff and I can talk about that in the review. But it literally was not until after the review was live, like the day after it went live, that NAS emailed us and they're like, hey, by the way, these patches are coming. And we're like, okay, well, we will let them know about these patches when they actually start showing up, Uh basically. It strikes me as damage control, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it, Yeah. um, it, it, it kind of does. And that's really a shame. Um. Ash, you mentioned earlier about Xseed and saying how they blew it. I can't remember. Did Xseed do the original translation for the PS4, or did they screw up on another Ease game? I could be incorrect about that. I thought they did the first translation for the, the for the PS4 version. I thought that they were responsible for that, but I could be incorrect. I, I can't uh, remember. Talking, Nihon Falcom published Ease 8, so they would have been the ones behind it. Ah, okay. Then, then my bad. Okay, that yeah. would explain why there are a lot of people, um, a lot of Ease fans, understandably, who are like, uh, yeah, NIS America really screwed this up. Let's go back to Xseed. So that would explain that. Yeah. And, and if you look at Xseed, if you look at the games that have been coming out from them over the past, you know, year or so, I mean, we have like SNK Heroines Tag Team Frenzy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they did do Danganronpa uh, V3 last year, which is very text heavy and that kind of thing. Right. So this isn't the absolute biggest thing but this has to be one of their bigger and more complicated projects mm-hmm. uh for yeah. what is really a pretty small outfit and it must have just been in it must there must have been some kind of big challenge going on behind the doors or right they were having some kind of budget constraints or something but the fact that they went and completely relocalized it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that that could not have been cheap. <laughs> no, no, it really couldn't have. And that was a really good gesture, actually. The fact that, uh, yeah. as I said earlier, I didn't have a huge problem with the translation, but these fans who were very dedicated to the franchise, they did. So they said, okay, we'll do right by you this time. And I hear that the repatched translation on the PS4 is fine. So um, there you go, I guess. And hopefully that's go. what they're patching into the Switch version. Like, I, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's so weird. And, you know, and to be perfectly clear i want to say that having been a career editor in the past it's not easy no i'm not saying that that this is something that should have been easy for them to do and push out the door without even thinking about it like localizing anything especially a game with this much text and you know nadia you know just like i do there is a massive amount of text in this game yes there's quite a bit herculean effort and like i i absolutely like my my respect goes out to the people who had to take this on but at the end of the day there's still no excuse for how things you know made it into the game the way they are now right i agree yeah launch patches just because you got a launch patch doesn't mean that it's okay because not everybody is going to have access to this launch patch potentially if it's just out of the box it's broken in some way or the localization is bad that's not super yeah and i don't want to be like oh in my day blah 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 but like there was a time when you had no option to patch when it went to cartridge it was done you could not go back and then they became beloved glitches (laughs) they sure (laughs) did sometimes remember what happened with twilight princess oh god uh, that was terrible game (laughs) yeah cannon glitch the cannon glitch yeah so in the in the worst case scenarios like before patching was possible, or at least easily possible, that could completely ruin a game. And I mean, imagine if we were living in, in an era still where this game was being released without the ability to easily patch it. I mean, it would be a not a broken game, but it would be a partially broken one, at least. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Suikoden 2, which was a, just a fantastic game that had a terrible translation, deserved so much better. There was actually, that's another game again, where there was an untranslated Japanese text. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But at the end of the day, you would still, I mean generally recommend it for the nintendo switch oh yeah in a second i mean if if you like action rpgs if you're a fan of the genre and you don't have access to a ps4 and you can see yourself playing this game on the go a lot 100 percent recommend it without any reservations i mean it's it really is it's a special series and, and mm-hmm. it, it didn't take very long for me to play you're playing east 8 for me to see why it has lasted as long as it has and endured it really is a special series and it, it is very much its own flavor of, of Japanese action RPG. And I see a lot of other reviews, I have to say. I And I, I don't usually call out other reviews, but I have seen some other reviews comparing it in, in to Xenoblade, and I don't see that. No, I don't, I don't see that at all. It's not Xenoblade-like at all. So, no, so no. anyone out there who's like, oh, I don't know if I'll like it because of the Xenoblade comparisons, don't worry about that. It's not... <laughs> no. Sure, there are certain broad strokes you can paint between Xenoblade and East, like the fact that there are stats and the characters have HP. <laughs> and basically, that's that's where it ends, isn't it? Like at the, that's, That really is. It's at the really, very best, exactly. you could say it's it's Zelda-ish, but even so, it still has its, its very unique traits. Exactly. So, yeah, definitely don't even think about any sort of Xenoblade comparisons. In my opinion, the two, I didn't even think of the two, like, at all when I was playing East. I, did, I didn't think of comparing them at all. So, yeah, I don't quite get where people are getting that... Yeah, that is, that is a weird comparison when I have to say that. And I love both series, and it's still weird. Well, before I let you go, are there any? did anything stand out to you from E3 in an RPG aspect? And what's what's the most anticipated RPG for the rest of the year for you, if anything? Oh, man, put me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, so does this inca- like include action RPGs, turn-based, everything? 
or oh, just, yeah. whatever you like. Oh, just don't, don't, just don't, don't, just don't go, come out and go, you know what I'm really looking forward to in an RPG context? Black Ops 4. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> FIFA. Uh, man, you're really twisting my arm here because the, my two main answers are, of course, Kingdom Hearts 3, but also Octopath Traveler. I ah. am mm. so hyped for Octopath Traveler. It hurts. And I've been listening to it. What little of the soundtrack we have so far on repeat for the past, like, couple of weeks. It's nice, and, isn't it? Uh, it really is, and it's just, it, mm, it, everything they're doing with Octopath Traveler just checks off every box that personally just makes me gleeful. Like, it, it, the FF6 style sprites, but in high definition with the 3D graphic style, and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and the, 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 that is one of the most video gamey like video game soundtracks I've heard in a long time. It's just so raw. Yeah. And, but, on the other side of that, Kingdom Hearts 3, and I, I've watched <laughs> all those E3 trailers far more many times than I would care to admit. And I've been looking forward to this game like other fans for like 12 years now. So it's one of those two games. Do I have to pick one? Uh, we won't no. pick you. All right. No, you got to pre- pick one. one you got to pick one. Oh, that's Cass' oh, idea, not me. me. Got to pick it. <sighs> All right. Kingdom Choose. Hearts 3. This is a real Sophie's Choice right here. Kingdom Hearts 3. It's got to be that. I've been waiting too long to see how this story uh, ends. Yeah, it has It'll been be out in January. Years. You think the story's going to end? You really think it's going to end? <laughs> well, this, sorry, well, this one the, will. This arc of the story. The, oh, the okay. Arc. So, It'll be uh, back in 10 is, years. Yeah, and it, it is coming out in 2019 now. So if you were to say this year specifically, Octopath Traveler without a doubt. Okay, that's fair. I think that's fair. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts 3 sure seems like they airlifted a PS2 game right into 2018. <laughs> which you, I'm fine you, with. Mechanically, you mean? Yeah, but, I mean, just the look and the feel and everything about it just sure. brings me way back to the 2000s, like the mid-2000s. <laughs> That, that doesn't surprise me. Unfortunately, despite my, my greatest attempts, I was not able to play Kingdom Hearts 3D3. Like, it's oh, so weird. really? Oh. Well, it's weird, because I, I must have sent about 50 emails back and forth between Square Enix and uh, us at Game Explain setting up appointments, and they, will, they are happy to give us as much access as we want to Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Dragon Quest XI, Just Cause 4, uh, the new Captain Awesome Life is Strange game. Like, they'll, they're happy. But as soon as I even mention Kingdom Hearts 3 in a reply, I get stonewalled. And I <laughs> cannot figure it out. Wow. And it's not, it's not as if we cover Tomb Raider all that much on Game Explain. We do cover Kingdom Hearts. Right. So we are all, like, Andre, Derek, and I are all just flabbergasted. We have no idea is a why we're stonewalled with Kingdom Hearts, but there it is. And, uh, but I did get a, you know, I did get extended, uh, time with Mega Man 11 once again. So that kind of made up for it. You, you heard the man. You heard the man, Square Enix. Give him some time with Kingdom Hearts Three. Jeez, <laughs> I know we can't wait for it, and we're happy to cover it on the channel. So the channel's up to almost a million subs. Which, by the way, congratulations! Yeah, congratulations! On that, I'm so. surprised they still yeah. all do. That's that's nuts. Yeah, and and I mentioned that fact. You're an influencer now. Email. Yeah, like I mentioned that. Like, hey, we're <laughs> we're a media outlet with almost a million subscribers. Like, hey, you, we would love to cover Kingdom Hearts, and they just don't reply. So. Alas. It is what it is, but thank you for the compliment. Uh, yeah, we're within uh, 50,000 f- uh, subscribers now. We're within shooting distance of a million, which wow. we're very excited about. Well, make sure to smash that like button, <laughs> rate, and subscribe, and Hit the all bell. of that stuff. And Ash, we'll have you back on the show real soon. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again, you guys, for having me on. It's oh, great having time, you. And I'm looking forward to coming back sometime. Okay, Nadia, thanks to Ash for joining us. So last week we teased a new series that we would be doing, and that series is the top 25 RPGs according to Acts of the Blood God. And the original impetus was for this project was last year 
uh, we'll see, IGN and Game Informer released their top 100 RPG list, uh, mm-hmm. like, pretty much at the same time. And <laughs> I remember that, yes. I'm not a big fan of top 100 lists because I feel like people, they're so big that they yeah. kind of lose all meaning. It, it's better to just, and people only really care about the top 25, right? I agree. That's when people start to bring out their claws and frolic yep. each other. But yeah, I get lost with, a, with top 100 anything. And this podcast has been going for, I, I think, about 160 episodes at this point. We've uh, existed since early 2015. We never really just said, like, put down our flag and said, all right, mm-hmm. these, these are the 25 RPGs right, right here. Right. So it's about time. So this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to do one a week. We're going to do that for the next six months, but we really <laughs> want to give each one the time and the love that it deserves. We don't, we don't want to just give it a capsule. Mm-hmm. We don't want to. I don't think you can really encapsulate these games in a couple hundred words. I think I think no. we really need to talk about. Let's talk about them, Nadia. Yes. We'll so sit down and with our coffee and talk. And we're going to have a companion piece on the website too. Mm-hmm. So so th- there's going to be so keep an eye on the website as well with a companion piece, and eventually we're going to build it out to a nice big hub, and that will be the top 25 RPGs, according to Acts of the Blood God. Stay tuned for, like, next January for <laughs> for number one. <laughs> but, I mean, that's a good reason to keep following us, right? I agree. Please look forward to it. So, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a little musical cue in here, and you can kind of figure out what the next, what number 25 is right here. Yep, that's right, Nadia. Number 25 on this list, and maybe a surprise to some people. We're starting out controversial, I think. Mm-hmm. Number 25 is Final Fantasy V, the yes. super, the middle Super Nintendo game, a game that a lot of people considered a black sheep for a very long time. And uh, one thing I want to say is, don't worry, we're not going to put every freaking Final Fantasy on this list. Uh, <laughs> if anything, we've been... I kind of went out of my way to avoid trying to put like multiple games from a particular series on here yeah. there's only there's only one other final fantasy on this list I, i'm gonna spoil you right now uh-huh, uh-huh. and then there's one other series that gets multiple games and that's about it i think final fantasy is easier to do in this case because every final fantasy kind of stands on its own it does doesn't it like uh, more so than dragon quest even i have to admit final fantasy games like to experiment quite a bit yes I mean, every Final Fantasy is kind of its own beast, and that doesn't make it feel redundant, as opposed to, say, I don't know, yeah, yeah, every Mass Effect is different, but at the end of the day, it's like, kind of pick one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's hard to do that with Final Fantasy. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do that, but Final Fantasy V. So, just, let's start with a little background, Nadia. This is the fifth game five years after the original, has five uh-huh. boss themes and five main characters. I, I'm, ge- I'm sensing a pattern right here. Yeah, there's a bit of a pattern going on. Um, and it was, uh, you mentioned it was the black sheep of the, the family. And uh, I wonder if it comes across as that to us because it was not a game that we had for a very long time. And in fact, I think one of the first uh, fan translator RPGs most of us played was Final Fantasy V. Yes, uh, Chris Kohler was actually... A- one of the fans who helped translate it back yes. in the back in the mid nineties, way back in way back in the day, mid to late nineties, I want to say. 
Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I think he actually went as far as to, he was on the show actually talking about what he did to get the game. Like he mm-hmm. went to like import shops uh, or across uh, California. He ordered it online eventually, I believe was what he did. And he basically translated the game himself, or at least as much as he could. Yes, he was. Yes, he did. Uh, uh, you're, you're right, though, when you're saying that it's actually more of an American thing. Um, this this is this might be apocryphal, but there have been reports or <laughs> the, the hearsay, I suppose you could say, that it's actually uh-huh. more popular than Final Fantasy VI in Japan. Yeah, I've heard that myself, uh, and I don't have a hard time believing it, to be honest with you. Um, I once went to the Square Enix Symphony uh, in Baltimore, and uh, it's funny, they played uh, Clash on the Big Bridge, which, uh, of course, we know that song quite well now, but when they first, when they played it, they said, this is one we get requested in Japan a lot, but nobody here really knows what it is. This and is a it great is, song. Course, it's a great song. It's what plays when you fight, uh, it was a uh, Gilgamesh, isn't it? I, I want to say yes. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a phenomenal exactly. song, and then, in fact, there are multiple there phenomenal are boss battle boss, boss themes and remixes and everything. I I feel like a lot of Americans maybe were exposed to Battle on the Big Bridge uh, in theater rhythm. Theater rhythm, and also I think there was a remix of it in Final Fantasy XII. But I, I think there are a few reasons that it's really popular in Japan versus mm-hmm. here, and one of them is it is much more lighthearted. Uh, than is. a lot of Final Fantasy games. It's not as story-focused. It's much more grindy and gameplay-focused. And is. this is painting with a broad brush, but the impression that I've always gotten has been that just pure grinding is a very popular thing to do. It's almost meditative in over in right. Japan. That yeah. may, that, I've never heard that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Grinding is, if I'm in the mood, it's something I like to do as well, and meditative is a good way to put it. There's somebody else who really loves Final Fantasy V. And mm-hmm. that is Hironobu Sakaguchi, who oh. suppo- purportedly said that it was his favorite Final Fantasy prior to Nine. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes. But he worked together with Yoshinori Katase. Katase brought out a lot of the humor in the game. Uh, he, he, it was originally a fairly serious script, but he decided to make it a lot more lighthearted and... Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that a lot of people praise Final Fantasy V for is that the characters have almost a kind of a familial feel to them. Mm-hmm. They are a little bit a little bit goofy, and that's actually quite yeah. a contrast from four and six. And uh, see, Tetsuya Nomura stepped in. It was like he he was already at Square at this point, but this yes. was he he got to be a monster designer in this one. Mm-hmm. And oh, Nomura. And the job system was designed by Hiroyuki Ito, and this game. It stands out because it is really kind of the last game, last traditional Final Fantasy. And when I say traditional, I mean in the vein of the first kind of five games in the series where they still had the crystals. This is the last mm-hmm. one that really, truly had the crystals, right? <laughs> they were totally crystal oriented. You're right. Yes. And this was also, I believe, the last game before Hironobu Sakaguchi got kicked upstairs over at Square, uh, over at Square Soft. And mm-hmm. Final Fantasy VI really marked a period where kind of the next generation started to rise up. And Sakaguchi was busy with many more other things. So he had perhaps a, a more direct hand in the creation of this game than with some of the games that would follow. Yeah, and it's actually funny that you say that because thinking back, uh, Final Fantasy I, Final Fantasy III, and Final Fantasy V, those were all very heavily oriented around the job system. And for a lot of Final Fantasies after that, we didn't see the job system. Yep. So 
America, obviously, as you've heard, Americans did not get this game for quite a while because <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Nintendo decided that it was just not accessible. Final Fantasy II did not sell as well or as fast as they perhaps had hoped. Console RPGs right. at the time were seen as kind of a non-starter over here in America. They were seen as more of a PC genre and a very hardcore genre at that yeah, so yeah. uh so as a consequence we didn't get it and that's why it doesn't have kind of the same nostalgic aspect of final fantasy 4 and 6 yeah and, and then I when think, it uh, oh i'm sorry i meant to say uh games were actually uh, localizing them was a much more intensive process back then it took a very long time yes and so when it finally came out it came out in i want to say 2000 with final fantasy anthology on the playstation and yeah, yeah. This is the first time to for a lot of Americans to really kind of grapple with this game. And unfortunately, it had a really, 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 really bad localization. We were maybe the theme of this episode is bad localizations. That had an atrocious <laughs> localization. <laughs> yeah, that made Ease 8 look like like Shakespeare. It was, it was pretty awful. Uh, that was uh, where the Wyvern was called the Wyburn, which is yeah, just so a was great a, name. That's my absolute favorite one. But, and oh, uh, yeah. And the main character is named Butts. Butts. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody looked at that and said, "That's a great idea for a character." Oh, let's have we have Cecil in Final Fantasy IV. And we have butts. And Tina from uh, Tina from Bob's Burgers just went, "Huh, my new favorite character." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it was not benefited from that. It also struggled with just really bad load times, right? Owing oh, to those atrocious. yeah, you had the cool. Oh, I'm going into a battle. But And it didn't benefit from the fact that it was side-by-side with Final Fantasy VI, which was kind of the pinnacle of what the SNES... One of the pinnacle games of the SNES, right? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of sheer scope, uh, graphically, Final Fantasy VI was much better. So Mm -hmm. Final Fantasy V looked downright primitive on the PlayStation. Yeah, it did. Um, It kind of really struck that that middle ground between VI and and, uh, IV graphically. I mean, it's not the most impressive-looking game at all, ever, but it doesn't need to be. And also, the really bad localization did not bring out the humor in the script. Mm -hmm, And humor was a huge component of Final Fantasy V, especially with characters like Gilgamesh. So what people who were just coming off Final Fantasy VII were walking into was a very challenging hardcore rpg with a terrible localization notably worse graphics mm-hmm. and a very light story and if coming on final fantasy 6 and 7 and 8 it was just like it felt like it felt ancient it felt ancient it, it felt like oh okay i understand why this game was never localized for us and that really wasn't really fair to the game yes and so it took a long time i feel like for it to finally build an audience. And over the years, it's been released on the GBA. It's been it, where it got a much better script. Mm-hmm. Most people see that as one of the better ones. Uh, it's also been released on Steam and iOS. It's uh, Bart's, <laughs> now Bart's, uh, <laughs> got, got a, a nice starring role in Final Fantasy Dissidia. Right. And I think got more of a fan base because of that. Um, and over time, I think that opinions toward Final Fantasy V have definitely softened. Yes, they definitely have. And even to this day, 
Um, I don't know if people are making it for lost time or if it's just that good of a game, probably the latter, but uh, people still have, they play Final Fantasy V and they have it down to a science and they still find ways to screw around with it. And that's, I find that really impressive. That really speaks to how well and how deep the game works. So let's dive in a little deeper. So the way we're going to do this in general is that we're going to talk about kind of what makes each of these games stand out uh, and mm-hmm. just why we're putting them on this list. We're going to talk about some of, some of the best moments from the game. We're going to talk about why it still holds up, and we're going to talk about how you should play it and how you can play it at this moment. Uh, thankfully, Final Fantasy V is relatively easy to find, but uh, there are some versions I wouldn't recommend. Well, I'll yeah, just say that. Absolutely. So, which, by the way, we still need to update it, but Nadia, I think last year, did a uh, all of the how to play each of the Final Fantasies yes, and which one a- you should be too. We still yeah, need to update that together. because we've had Final Fantasy 15 PC come out since then, Final Fantasy 12, uh, the Final Fantasy 12 remaster come out since then. Mm-hmm. But yes, okay. So what makes it stand out? I, I think there's an obvious one here, Nadia. A uh-huh. Job system. Hello. <laughs> job system, most definitely. And I was thinking about it, and I don't think the job system has changed very much at all since Final Fantasy 5, and it hasn't needed to. Yeah, it was it was really brilliant. Uh, there have been job systems in other games, to be perfectly honest. Um, for example, Dragon Quest uh, Six had a job system, and I oh, think three had Dra- one as well. Yeah, Dragon Quest Three had one. Dragon Quest Seven didn't have one, right? Uh, Dragon Quest Seven did have one, and it took twenty hours to get to it. <laughs> yes, okay. It just doesn't feel like it has one. <laughs> right? Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah, Dragon Quest Six always felt like fairly simplistic, whereas. The job system in Final Fantasy V has a, a, a simple but fairly brilliant conceit, which is that you level up the job, right? Yes, yes. And as you, by just playing with it, and as you level up that job, you unlike, unlock skills, which can be subsequently transferred to other jobs, and then you yes. mix and match. But it's not just, so that's, that's the basics. And so you got stuff like, oh, I got a thief, but the thief has barehanded fighting. That's awesome. Yeah, you got exactly. a knight. You got a knight. You can deal with like a ninja. Uh, uh-huh. Innate. There are innate skills like the thief's caution skill that can be kind of carried over, and the stats are changed too depending on what skill you take. So, if uh, which job you take. So, for example, if you're using a monk, your strength will really go up, and this mm-hmm. is pretty like. And as you max it, so the you are rewarded heavily for maxing out jobs. Yes, and absolutely. carrying that over to freelancer because that is where the stats stick. Yes, yes. There's a lot of ways to play with this game, and I see uh, just thinking back to the game, just how yes, it is a very grindy game, but it really does reward you for sticking to it. Yes, and I will say that it's not extremely intuitive. <laughs> I remember no, the first really. time I played Final Fantasy V, uh, just being like, "What do I? What do I pick? What do yeah. I do?" <laughs> It stresses me out a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I totally appreciate it for what it is, and I it fully deserves to be on this list 100%, but as someone who stresses out a little if I'm playing a game the right way or the wrong way, it, it makes me a little bit nervous. It, it was funny because the original guide did not was not a huge help because <laughs> I think it recommended basically grinding for 20 hours before you hit your first boss. Oh, no, that's bad. That's bad advice. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. So, yeah, the job system has been universally praised over the years. Uh, Let's be honest. It's very grind-focused, and if you're willing to just 
level up jobs and put them together in a semi-intelligent way, you're going to probably blow through Final Fantasy V without a huge amount of problem, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are a couple of moments where you, you absolutely have to have a skill, if I'm not mistaken. I think to go up against Garuda, you need to have the Dragoon Jump skill. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are a few gotcha moments like that, but they're very infrequent. Yeah, I think what people what draws people to the job system in Final Fantasy V is that maybe similar to Final Fantasy VIII, there is a just this sense of ooh, I can break this game. Oh, <laughs> you absolutely I can, can. Yeah, I I can do so much with these jobs. I can create all kinds of interesting combinations. It just it demands experimentation, and I think mm-hmm. I think that's what has really grabbed people over the years. Yeah, I agree. And uh, that is definitely part of the fun. It's just uh, sometimes I feel wrong or bad for, for doing that, but it's what the game wants you to do. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, why, why would you feel wrong for for experimenting, Nadia? I don't know. It's just it's something about it is a little bit like nerve wracking. Like I said, like, am I doing this right? Am I is the game going to yell at me? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I always, the thing that always jumped out at me or I struggled with a little bit was I would pick the job and then I would have to level it up and leveling up a job felt like a commitment. Uh-huh, exactly, yeah. And so I was like, what if I'm ro- leveling up the wrong one? What there if this go. isn't the optimal combination? Ah. Yeah, exactly. And there's also the problem that, well, all the cool looking jobs aren't necessarily the best jobs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's, and when, that is unfortunate, isn't it? Though most of yeah. them are pretty solid, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, and to be ninja fair, is a really good job. <laughs> ninja's a good job. Monka's a good job. Um, this is also the game where the white mages have cat ears. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, oh, do they? Yeah, it's really cute. That is adorable. Yeah. Uh, another thing that makes it stand out. I've already mentioned the uh, the humor, and yes. we have Gilgamesh with his Excalibur. Excalibur. Yes. My apologies. And saying things like, enough expository banter, it's time we fight like men, and ladies, and ladies who dress like men. <laughs> he was great. He's actually also great in uh, Dissidia too, because uh, he has that, like, you know, he tries to pronounce Kepka's last name, he just screams, it's too long! And our villain, uh, X-Death, is also extremely cheesy and over-the-top, to the point that it feels like it's almost making fun of the extremely over-the-top evil overlords from previous games. Yeah, I think by that point, they absolutely knew what Golbez was about. And they were like, okay, let's just make fun of ourselves. Yes. Uh, Because Final Fantasy was pretty established at this point. This was the fifth game. Mm -hmm. And the series had had immense amounts of success. And I I think they just wanted to kind of have fun with it a little bit as they were, you know, doing something new. Another thing that makes it stand out, like, we don't really think of Final Fantasy V as having great graphics, but... They did a really good job of making the characters much more expressive than yes. in Final Fantasy IV. In Final Fantasy IV, the, the original SNES game, they would kind of like, you know, put their head down and look sad. Or and that was all they had. They were very squished. They didn't look nearly yes. as squished in on the overworld as they did in four. Yeah, they would jump around with the big eyes and everything, and they they were very expressive characters. And you had lots of really big beautiful sprites at certain points and so it was not nearly as primitive as it first seemed no um i still like looking back at the monster designs i think most of them are really good yes another thing that makes it stand out it's hard it is a hard (laughs) game 
if you're just starting out. Like if, if you're just starting out, yeah. Yes, I, I think the thing that I really like about this game is, yes, it's hard. The first time you run into a boss, uh, so let's compare it to Final Fantasy IV. The first boss you fight is kind of the, the, the wind dragon, right? Yeah, the mist dragon. And even if you screw up and you hit it when it's in tornado form, it's fine. You know, when it's when it's in mist form, yeah. You if you hit it, it tells yes. you what you've done wrong. It's, yeah. Yeah, it tells you what you've done wrong. It gently punishes you. Whatever, it's fine. In this one, the first one of the first major bosses that you run into will just friggin' steamroll you. <laughs> it <laughs> hits you so was. many times that you're just like, I can't do it. Oh my god, it's doing so much damage. Ah, and then you're dead. And I'm so it kind of begs you to experiment with the class, um, with the classes and such, to try and uh, to be able to deal with him. Right. I'm try- uh, do you remember who that was? Because I'm blanking on who that was. I do not remember. I apologize. I'm doing this wrong. Ah. <laughs> no, no. It's just because you're right. Because yes, it's, I do remember it was a hard battle. They want you to, to experiment with uh, with the class system, but uh, try out I the get- monk. <laughs> the monk has the monk. more HP. You do. You dope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want I want my four uh, white mage party, please. Uh, yes, exactly. That's so, a way to die. and it, it notably has some some really nasty bosses. I, I think Atomos is a famous one where it oh, will yes. slowly will knock out a character and then slowly drag them toward him and eat them. <laughs> yeah, speaking of nerve wracking things that happen in that game. Yes, that's ex- one. Yeah, totally. So. I remember that that was a thing that I think turned off a lot of people who were initially picking it up. Was just like, oh my god, this is this is really hard. This is a straight up nasty game if you're not prepared to do some grinding and if you're not mm-hmm. prepared to really engage with the job system. And certainly compared to say Final Fantasy VII, where you right. had just OP materia all over the place, it, it was <laughs> it was around. a shock. It was yeah, a shock. No. I agree. Yeah, it was a. Uh... It was a challenge. I definitely wanted you to grind a bit, but uh, gosh, it was, you know, even though it's not my favorite Final Fantasy, it sure was rewarding. Were you, was that the first time that you, was the first one you played uh, Anthology? No, I actually played uh, <clears throat> the uh, the fan translation on Emulator. No. Oh my, well, okay, Nadia. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I eventually sought out the fan translation on Emulator because I just wanted it to run better. Yeah, that was the, I have to be honest, that was the best choice at the time. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I bought it. I bought the game on Anthology. I owned it. Yeah, so so I did I. I didn't feel that bad. <laughs> no, to be honest. And uh, for a long time, as I said earlier, this game felt like the forbidden fruit for a Final Fantasy fan at the time. That's why Chris Kohler went to such crazy lengths to get the game. I, I totally relate to what he did. One more thing that really stands out about Final Fantasy V is the songs. I already mentioned the battle on the big bridge. I, I think yeah. the boss themes are, in general, are really strong. It has a, a very peppy, upbeat theme uh, that starts with a head on our way, uh, which yeah, is the first theme. one that plays on the title screen. And just, you want to jump on a chocobo and start going. Yeah, and that's pretty much what uh, Bart's or Butts or whatever you want to call him, whatever you prefer. Uh, that's what the whole game is about. Technically, he's kind of a wanderer who has no specific direction to go in. And uh, that's what that whole song really kind of conveys doesn't it yes it does and it has so it has a likable cast and i think one of the characters that a lot of people liked was ferris mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um a pirate who initially you think is kind of a feminine dude 
who mm-hmm. turns out to be a woman and is the sister of the of the princess and mm-hmm. that i mean the oh the the woman who is dressed up as a guy so that she could be in a more masculine job isn't exactly you know <laughs> it isn't exactly the newest or most innovative trope but right you said especially at this time and place right. you had women were very much in a box right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they were your fairly typical you know wizard they, they would be wizards or they would be healers or they would be kind of mother figures i mean in think about like the the roles that women played in final fantasy 4 right i mean right, you there had, were healers Rydia was a, a summoner and rosa of course was a white mage yeah, Rydia was uh, was a victim a lot of the time in that yeah. game, right? Yeah. And yeah, so they fell into kind of the classic uh, kind of roles where Rydia was a summoner and um, Cecil's wife was... God, why can't I remember names today? Rosa. Rosa, <laughs> Rosa was a white mage and she was the dutiful wife, etc. So. And so Final yeah. Fantasy V had Ferris and Ferris was kind of rough and cool and kind of uncomfortable with uh, with just general femininity and seemed actually pretty happy being a pirate captain. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the whole idea of a pirate captain being a woman, that's of course, there are historical examples of that. If I'm not mistaken, that's pretty cool. Number one, number two, she was best friends with the dragon. Come on. Well, as we all know, according to history, women never did anything until the 1960s. No, they sat on their ass and knitted all day. (laughs) But yeah, no. So I I think Ferris was a very popular character, especially in the West. Yes, um, I over agree. the years, and it, I, I saw notes that Final Ferris is very popular with gender fluid or transgender mm-hmm. uh, gamers, and I, I could see why. I, I think that if you're a young transgender male and you mm-hmm. see a character like Ferris, you're like, oh wow, that's that's kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's just really unfortunate she had like that terrible like pirate accent. I think in the. <laughs> anthology translation i'm like oh my jesus oh god i mean that's a Woolsey thing right gotta have the bad accents was he did Woolsey translate that one i want to say yes oh that's bad that's a bad job by Woolsey if that's the case and i'm usually a big Woolsey defender <sighs> i imagine that he probably didn't have a lot of time and uh, budget to actually get that thing out the door but yeah i'm pretty sure Woolsey did the original translation oh that's that's too bad yeah exactly so and, and then the rest of the cast uh we had Gallop. Mm-hmm. who rides down on a meteor and he's kind of like Tella, but uh, maybe a bit goofier. A, a little bit goofier. Tella's got angst problems. Uh, Gallop yes. does not. Yes, Gal- he doesn't, he's not on a bloodthirsty quest for revenge that will surely go wrong. That he re- regrets the instant he dies. Oh yes. dear, this all went terribly wrong. How did that happen? He also has a granddaughter. Yes. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, Gallop Oops. dies. Sorry. Gallop dies and uh, his granddaughter eventually ends up taking up Gallop's role um yeah and Gallop as uh, I, I think the, my favorite quality about Gallop is that he rides down on a meteor from another planet <laughs> you know speaking about like we're, we're talking about how the story is not as like in-depth as uh, most Final Fantasy games it still finds ways to keep you engaged like why is this dude riding on a meteor mm. what is going on here <laughs> I mean it is kind of spooky at the very beginning right where right you see him inside the meteor and he's basically going i hope it's not too late and you're yeah. wondering what the heck is going on uh it, it, it's a it's a strong it's a fairly strong opening even if it's a little goofy that barts is just walking around the impact crater and it's like oh hi <laughs> welcome to the party oh hi also welcome to the party 
<laughs> like the way that they gather up the the crew members is pretty funny to be perfectly honest yeah it is pretty funny i think the thing that's interesting to me about final fantasy V's cast is how compact it is mm-hmm, it absolutely. it never really grows beyond the kind of core four well you have the core four and then one of them gets replaced as opposed yeah. to final fantasy four which is constantly rotating in a fairly mm-hmm. large cast and uh, that's because so much of the focus is on the actual gameplay. But a, I think a side effect of that is in Final Fantasy IV, it's constantly kind of disrupting you. And you could argue that that's a good thing, right? Right, right. Because um, they are, because it's asking you to experiment a lot. But in Final Fantasy V, I think, I, I like the continuity aspect of it. I, I think there is a benefit to that as well. Yeah, I agree. I actually have to say, one of the things I really don't like about Final Fantasy IV is being asked to change out all the time, and sometimes not having the option to, you actually never have the option to have the party you want. It's always what the game wants to give you, and that really sucks when you want to use Yang instead of Edge, but guess what? Unless you're paying, playing Final Fantasy Advance, it's not happening. Alright, let's move on to best moments in Final Fantasy V. There are a couple best moments. Uh, I think one of them has to be the turtle. Oh, yeah. I didn't, uh, what was it? What did you think I was doing over the past seven centuries? Eating pizza? Thank you for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> reference. Very, very nice. Thank you there. A very it. sardonic yes. uh, turtle likes to call out uh, annoying exposit- exposition. You'd think that a turtle would be a little more, uh, I, I want to say, patient with that kind of thing? <laughs> it's funny, thinking about it, uh, sardonic turtles seem to be kind of the literary norm. I mean, you got um, Mar- Morla the aged one from... Uh, never-ending story who her whole thing is i don't care Uh, i mean when you're a turtle i mean life you're just not that interested in the fast-paced life of the normies (laughs) i mean there's the gosh the turtle from the stephen king universe i forget its name but it's also another turtle that's just like eh whatever the world's getting destroyed that's your problem not mine i'm a big-ass turtle gilgamesh's heroic sacrifice where Mm. he is told now die and he goes that's my line and then he dies (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the best exit for a villain ever. And then it seems to get lost in time and space because he keeps popping up in other Final Fantasies. He, yeah, he, in fact, I've heard that, like, uh, Siegfried from Final Fantasy VI is supposed to be him as well, but there's, Mm. they never really went anywhere with that, so I can't say one way or the other, but it's very much the same idea. You have this swordsman who is just a goof and is not to be taken seriously at all. And finally, I, I think this is the moment that a lot of people would point out is when Gallif, in the midst of his final battle, his final heroic sacrifice, which, by the way, Tella also has a heroic sacrifice. They really did yeah. just recycle this character. They, they kind of did a bit. He goes all the way down to zero HP. Zero HP! And still, somehow, is still hitting a, at X-Death, and it's actually pretty awesome. That is how, that's how you know a, an RPG character is badass. They transcend, they, they see those numbers, and they're like, nope, I, I disagree, I disengage with these numbers, and they just like keep on going. <laughs> You have any? Uh, and then, of course, after he dies, he tried to revive him with rays and Phoenix down, answering the question of why weren't they using items? I don't know. <laughs> Does Phoenix down? Do you actually die? And Phoenix down brings you back? No, you just faint, and it wakes you, you up. Faint. You go to you go into KO people. There's a difference between KO yes. and death. Yes. Uh, no. Exactly. My favorite moment being the the dragon person that I am. There's mm. the the uh, scene where you rescue the Wind Drake because mm. it's been. Uh, hurt on top of the hill and uh yeah i I have a soft spot for that scene i love the dragon the dragon's rad hiryu i think that was his name yes 
All right. Why does it still hold up, Nadia? So there's a reason that I picked this one over Final Fantasy IV. Mm-hmm. I think Final Fantasy IV is a wonderful and extremely tight game, but its main story strength is the story, and I think the story is almost better for camp than anything else. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, that the story for Final Fantasy IV, while it is admirable for being one of the first games, first RPGs to really give us a story, uh, it was basically recycled Star Wars. And as much as I still love those characters and I still love the story, I understand it's been surpassed multiple times by, by Final Fantasy VI alone. It yes. has been improved upon. Whereas Final Fantasy V, in my personal opinion, um, I feel like that core system with the the jobs is just still holds up so well and people are still doing crazy things with it uh i mean there's that what is that called the four job fiesta what they do every year mm-hmm. exactly yeah, yes people are still playing with that game they're still learning new things and um that's something very few final fantasy games can say yeah the four job fiesta by the way it's a challenge it's an annual challenge that starts to well it started two days ago yeah it started very recently yes and it runs until august 31st and it's a challenge where players get one random job from each of the crystal sets in the game. And you can reg- register a run on the site. You got to stick with those. You got to stick with those jobs and try to get all the way through the game with them. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's tough. It is. It's like the Nuzlocke run, run for uh, the Nuzlocke run. So, uh, and so you want to tweet water, fire, and earth to unlock your other jobs when you get those crystals, and then you tweet victory along with a picture of you beating the final boss to complete the challenge. <laughs> yes, good luck. I have friends who've done the four-job fiesta. It's uh, it's pretty intense uh, for me. And you can also play, like, different runs. So you mm-hmm. got a random run, a chaos run, a pure chaos run, <laughs> a popular run, and a forbidden run. And you can do all jobs, 750 jobs, no 750 jobs, or classic jobs. And then you can do natural crystal only, upgrade crystals only, or fifth jobs. Like, there are a lot of different permutations. Yeah, so that just says right there why this game still holds up. There are just so many crazy-ass ways to play it. I I think Final Fantasy V, ultimately, it's the fact that it's crazy replayable. Mm -hmm. And if you're really into it, it kind of just, it's fun and relaxing to go through and try different permutations of the favorite the 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 jobs i I think the job system ultimately is why final fantasy 5 still holds up and as people over time have kind of gotten used to it they've kind of come to really love and appreciate final fantasy 5 yeah yeah it's taken some time but it's definitely gotten its due since at least in here here in america of course in japan it always had its due and it just had such an outsized impact on the series as a whole i mean you could I mean, yeah final fantasy 3 gave us the job system final mm-hmm. fantasy 1 had jobs but final fantasy 5 really popularized it right yeah exactly um like i said earlier it has not needed to change very much since then yes so final fantasy 5 number 25 on our list of the best 25 rpgs for that reason and here's how you can play it you can Find an old copy of Final Fantasy Anthology, which I don't recommend. <laughs> no, you, should, you probably shouldn't do that one, that one so much, no. Better is to find a copy on the Game Boy Advance. <laughs> it has a much better script. Mm-hmm. Uh, it suffers a bit from the sound chip, but not nearly as much as Final Fantasy VI. Yeah, yeah. And it adds uh, some additional jobs and oh, right, yeah. other features. Uh, I think it adds maybe four or five new jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were, there were quite a few, yeah. Yeah, and in general, it is uh, it is the best version if you can I get agree. a GBA and a copy of Final Fantasy V. And I, I don't think it's that expensive online. No, I haven't looked, but um, 
I know, I, I know that Final Fantasy VI Advance is quite expensive, so I don't know where Final Fantasy V sits. I've still got a I've still got a copy floating around my house somewhere. <laughs> Me too. Now that I've just too. made the move. Yeah. Um, you can also get it on the PlayStation Network. I wouldn't recommend that because that's the Final Fantasy Anthology version. Mm-hmm. With the load times and all of that good stuff. So, ooh, not ideal. No. I'm not sure if it ever came out on the Wii Virtual Console. I know Final Fantasy VI and four did. I don't think it did, no. I don't think it ever did because that would have been the SNES version. Right. And then there's the Steam and the iOS versions, which have really bad art. We have very, very bad graphics, but everything else checks out. So, yeah, yeah, it's the easiest, it's, by far the easiest way to play it. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, unfortunately. I mean, it's okay, I guess, but not ideal. But, I mean, not everybody can get hold of a GBA and a copy of the GBA game. This is a pretty no, hardcore but- way to do it. So, if you gotta play it, I guess mobile is a way. <laughs> And given the way that uh, Square Enix has actually done a really good job rescuing Chrono Trigger from that disaster that, uh, of a Steam port, I really wish they put that effort into uh, revising Final Fantasy uh, V and VI for Steam as well. All right, that is number 25 on our top 25 RPGs. What do you think of Final Fantasy V? Do you like seeing it here? Do you think it should have been higher? What do, you, uh, uh, do you have fond memories of Final Fantasy V? Please send us a note, drop them in the comments, and keep an eye out for a our fuller write-up on the site where we break it all down for the big list. All right, Nadia, our E3 wrap-up got quite a bit of discussion going, particularly around Dragon Quest Nine or Dragon Quest Eleven. Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, Kuni Nino says, "Cat's anecdote of how DQ Eleven is being dismissed as old-fashioned stirred up old feelings. Is it just me, or are Japanese games being ghettoized again? Xenoblade's expansion got almost no attention. USG was like the only place talking about Valkyria Chronicles. DQ Eleven got no push from Square Enix. Even Kingdom Hearts Three, there was a general dismissive attitude toward the game from the Western press." As if liking Kingdom Hearts is something you have to apologize for. I feel like RE2's remake is probably the only Japanese game that got a significant buzz. Shadows Die Twice and DMC5 look great, but they're treated like niche games. I I actually disagree with that. Because yeah, I, I, I saw, think... I saw a lot of enthusiasm for Japanese games, frankly. I, I think over the past year and a half, it feels like people have been celebrating Japanese games like crazy. Like, mm-hmm. between Nier and Persona 5... And, I mean, Breath of the Wild, and mm-hmm. on and on and on. I, I feel like a lot of people feel as if Japanese games, if anything, are having a bit of a renaissance. It's just, frankly, DQ11 and Valkyria Chronicles are niche games uh, in comparison to those other games. Uh, and Kingdom Hearts 3, I mean, it has a super-duper passionate fan base, and I think that it will definitely get its due when it comes out. But it's also kind of known for its extremely tangled lore and for its delays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of a hardcore thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so like RE2 Remake. Yeah, I, I think Shadows Die Twice and RE2 Remake got plenty of buzz and DMC5 as well. And if anything, I think uh, Capcom's on the up. Yeah, um, with the Shadow Type Twice in particular, I think got quite a bit of buzz, which is, which is nice because a lot of people trust from software and for good reason. Uh, it didn't get any buzz, and what, I apologize for forgetting about it, we're fairly excited about the Tales of Vesperia port over here. Yeah, that'll be my first chance to play it, so da-da-da-da. As Super Shinobi says, my prediction is that the PS5 won't be released before Q4 2020. 
Well, a handful of next-gen and cross-gen games we're talking about at this year's E3, they're all a long way from release. The next Xbox might be targeting a 2019 release, as if as it was mentioned already at the end of the Xbox conference, but a delay at AMD or anywhere else in the supply chain could push it into the 2020 as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think 2020 is when we can expect a new console. Uh, Johnny Boy 407 says, Nadia, any plans to play the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 Torna DLC? I'm pretty pumped for it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I forget when that's coming out. I think they said September. Uh, but that's actually a very interesting uh, story plot, uh, plot they're going with, is uh, Torna, of course, being the bad guys of the Xenoblade uh, Chronicles 2 universe. Uh, this kind of shows where it all went wrong for them, I suppose. Because, yeah, they started out all, like, you know, kind of fresh-faced and happy, and it all went to hell. So we'll find out how, I guess. Captain Opt- Oppositional says, I'm very excited for DQ11, but it's September release date means I'm going to have to wait. I'd love to wait for the Switch version, but who knows when that will be released. We still have no solid release date for Dark Souls Remastered for Switch. If I recall correctly, Valkyria Chronicles 4 also comes out in September. Oy, why? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be in the middle of DQ11. I mean, it's going to be pretty tough. Ooh, yeah. Well, I will have, like, DQ11 for my PlayStation 4, and I'll have uh, Valkyria Chronicles for my uh, Switch. So I'll find a way to make it work. I'll be in the middle of my game of the year, FIFA. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, wait, sorry, I was channeling Tom. Oh, yeah, that's uh, Tom's influence on all of us. We must yes. play FIFA. What the hell? I don't even like FIFA. Why am I saying that? Yeah, I love FIFA. Nice guy, Neon. I think it's hilarious that people take turn-based to mean ancient when some of the best modern games are turn-based. Uh, like what? I can't, I can't think of any best modern games that are actually turn-based. Yeah, Persona 5 is turn-based. That is maybe an exception. I think that most of the very popular modern games are like, you know... Fortnite. <laughs> For, turn-based or Fortnite. Or open-world games like Far Cry 5, to be perfectly right. honest. Why you gotta have bad taste, people? <laughs> turn-based games are the way to go. Step out. Is Symphony of the Night eligible for the official U.S. Gamer Top 25 RPG list? It's got that story and them stats and all these equipments. Action RPG, like, whoa! Guess you're gonna have to find out, won't you? Yeah, you will. Yes, stay tuned Sorry. over the next six months. <laughs> <laughs> don't falter now rider kicker i have memories of spending an hour every week at the pokemon center after school playing its wares i can't believe i spent so much time abusing their gift pokemon machine doing nothing but salamences <laughs> never got the deoxys but did get an eon ticket Ooh, eon ticket very nice that that got you to an island that would let you uh get you a thing uh, a special thing i want to say an eon ticket got you another one of the flying dragon things What's why can't i remember the i can't remember their name the uh the pokemon center was that the gosh i'm trying to remember where that was, was that the store in uh, new york city or is that something else entirely yeah this would have been the new york pokemon center right before it became the nintendo store before it became the nintendo world store yeah oh man that'd be cool to hang out every day i'm, I'm jelly yeah i'm super jelly too I did get to go to the Nintendo World Store, and it still had, like, plenty of stuff, so. And oh, I've yeah, been to yeah, the I've Pokemon had... Centers in Japan. Then that I'd love to visit. Yeah, they're fun. I mean, they're not amazing or anything. It's just, they're actually a surprisingly small store with a whole bunch of merch. Like, tons mm-hmm. of merch. A lot of overpriced merch. <laughs> if you want that, like, you know, that uh, Pokemon that's not uh, Pikachu stuffy, though, that's, best your, that's your best chance. And you can get a ton of, um, you, you, you can get a... A lot of special Pokemon there, so that was yeah, that was fun. Yeah, going all the way back to uh, Pokemon Gold and Silver, actually. But uh, Gamer Law, somewhat surprised by Cat's ambivalence toward Octopath Traveler, given her earlier comments in the episode about the continuing appeal of turn-based RPGs. I would have thought she'd be singing its praises. I'm, I'm waiting. 
Oh, mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest, right now all of my attention is taken up by Super Robot Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Mission 42. I, I just finished Mission 42. I've got like a fully upgraded party, and this is the part where it's good. And in uh-huh. fact, Super- SRWV is really good. It's like a it's the best Super Robot Wars game I've been play I've played in ages. You're, you're kind of a by the minute person, I suppose, when it comes to these kinds of releases. A by the minute. Well, yeah, if uh, something's out that takes up your attention, it's uh, you'll give it a you'll give it a look, and you'll yeah. really like it. Yeah, I mean, I just I want to kind of wrap up Super Robot Wars before I think of anything else, and I still got Witcher Three and Persona Five sitting there, <laughs> <laughs> staring at you accusingly. Yeah, Muchan. As for cyber, uh, I'm fine with random encounters, but after playing Bravely Default, I feel all games need to give you the option of degree of the encounters. Nadia playing FF9 shows even older games can be modified to tweet the random encounters to make it more bearable. As for Cyberpunk being FPS, I'm alright with it. Witcher 3 might be the only flaw the game has. I love everything but the combat in Witcher 3, which always took me out of the game. So them trying out FPS with Witcher's quality of writing feels like a nice move. I actually like the combat in Witcher 3. Because mm-hmm, yeah. it's it's like a dance, and I think once you really get high level, it makes you feel really cool. To be perfectly honest, a cool it, dance. It's a cool dance, and also I I really like the uh, putting together your uh, finding finding what skills you want to emphasize with the signs and everything. Yeah, you're OP and everything, but uh, it really does make you feel like a Witcher. So. But I'm sure we may be talking about Witcher 3 on this list. Uh, uh, we'll see, Maybe. right? Maybe. Wait until January. <laughs> All right. Acts of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us at the underscore catbot and Nadia at Nadia Oxford. And, of course, follow all of U.S. Gamer's social media channels, U.S. Gamer Net on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all of that. We were going to have Jeremy Parrish on this episode but unfortunately, Jeremy Parrish is not doing podcasts while he's trying to fix his air conditioning or something. But can I recommend that you check out the first in his 12-part series on the history of RPGs? He interviewed Richard Garriott and did a nice profile about all the stories that came with making Ultima. And he's kind of framing this as a series of discussions and, inter- and looks at individual games as he tries to kind of find the essence of the RPG. Which mm-hmm. is not an easy thing to do, perfectly honest. Yeah, absolutely but. is not. But he's if anyone can do it, it's Parrish. Uh, hopefully we'll have him on the next episode, because I think the next episode kind of begs for him to be on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hint, hint, spoiler, spoiler. So, we shall see. But until then, I've been Cat Bailey, and thanks for listening. We'll be back with another Top 25 entry and all of the rest of the RPG discussion. Until then, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.